Howdy folks, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 27 of the Popecast, the podcast about popes for people who like learning about history but don't much like dry, dusty history books. This episode's pope was in office less than a year, but left a mark on the church that's still making waves among Catholics and non-Catholics alike to this very day. Well-educated, a lover of sacred music, and a great servant of the poor, for better or for worse, this guy's actually known for formally condemning one of his papal predecessors, though not for being a heretic, just for being wishy-washy and neglecting his sacred duty. So this week, it's Pope number 80, the Pope who condemned his predecessor, sort of, St. Leo II. Before we get into Leo II, a quick note of apology and excitement. Um, listeners may have noticed a bit of a gap between this episode and the previous one of the Popecast, but it was for good reason, thankfully. Mrs. Popecast actually gave birth to our firstborn, Leo, three weeks ago, so we've been settling into new parenthood since then, and we're grateful for your patience and for everyone's prayers and well wishes. So though he was born on July 1st, we were really actually hoping that he'd hold out until July 3rd so he could share a feast with St. Leo II. Okay, who am I kidding? That was pretty much just me. Any mothers listening can relate, probably, but my wife had been ready for him to be born for like the previous three weeks before he decided to show up. But sharing a feast with the likes of St. Arnold, patron of Brewer, the Irish martyr St. Oliver Plunkett, and, of course, St. Junipero Serra, the great Franciscan missionary who colonized California. Um, we couldn't be happier. So, again, thanks to everyone for your prayers and well wishes. But now on to St. Leo II. Born Leo Menaeus around 611 in Sicily, the only other for sure thing we know about Leo II's early life is that his dad's name was Paul. But unfortunately, all of the other details of Leo's pre-Pope life are lost to history. Leo was elected Pope shortly following the death of Pope St. Agatho in January 681, but he actually wouldn't be consecrated and officially installed for over a year and a half. That was owing in part to some century-old rules that required the incoming Pope to pay a hefty tax to the Byzantine court, given that they were ruling uh, the Byzantine Empire at the time. And that was nearly a thousand miles away in Constantinople. And then they also, by extension, had to receive the Emperor's approval in return before officially being consecrated. But it seems to have also been just a result of correspondence taking forever to get there and back. Leo sent word to the emperor following his election in early 681, to which the emperor responded in a letter dated December 681. The, res the response back to Leo, in turn, didn't actually arrive back in Rome until July 682, the month after which Leo was formally installed as the 79th successor of St. Peter. Father Horace Mann recounts in his anthology The Lives of the Popes in the Early Middle Ages that Leo II was a, quote, man of great eloquence, as possessed of a good knowledge of the scriptures, as well-versed in Greek and Latin, and in the theory and practice of music, end quote. He goes on, noting that not only was Leo himself well-educated, but he was, quote, an earnest teacher of others, and he was at once a preacher and a doer of good works, for he was a lover of poverty and the poor, end quote. Aside from his actions following the Sixth Ecumenical Council, which we'll get to in a minute, Leo II made sure to dedicate a number of churches in his short reign, one of which was the Church of St. George in Valabro. Now, that's of particular interest to us, even if we've never heard of it before, because it would later become the titular church of the English Cardinal and soon-to-be Saint, John Henry Newman. 
For those wondering, titular churches, titular being derived from the word title, are churches in Rome assigned to each cardinal of the church. Harkening back to the earliest days of the church when Christianity was still illegal, when the titulae were effectively houses or other private buildings owned by prominent Romans that served as the earliest Catholic churches. The cardinals assigned to each titular church, which are actual parishes, mind you, are known now as cardinal protectors and are expected as part of their ministry to preside at Mass when visiting Rome, sometimes to raise funds for the church, church's upkeep and restoration, uh, but of course, though, they aren't expected to care for its day-to-day operations. But anyways, I digress. An interesting description of that Church of St. George in Valabro has survived, originally written by 18th century Italian archbishop and theologian Giovanni Domenico Mansi, and also featured in Father Mann's work. We read from Archbishop Mansi, presumably describing Leo II's structure that he commissioned to be built that remained a thousand years later, as Archbishop would have been uh, seeing it in the 1700s. He writes, quote, The building of Leo II still preserves its original outlines and is a small basilica of three naves, with 16 ancient granite or marble columns. Scarcely any other church within the city is so pervaded by the atmosphere of early Christian times. The original form of the church, that of a basilica, its simplicity, its sculptures, its inscriptions, some of them in Greek, dating from the first centuries of Christianity, its air of spellbound tranquility, its situation in the valley between the capital and the Palatine Hill, hallowed by so many historic associations, combine to form a powerful impression on the mind of the beholder, end quote. Based on that, I think it's safe to say Leo II would share the anger of many of us at the so-called recovation of many formerly beautiful churches that we see in our times now. But despite his notable qualities and other actions as Pope, easily Leo II's most notable action during his short 10 months in office was his confirmation of the decrees of the Church's Sixth Ecumenical Council, the Third Council of Constantinople, and his qualified condemnation of Pope Honorius I. Regular listeners of the PopeCast may remember our Infallibility series, a three-episode look into the three popes most commonly pointed at by non-Catholics when trying to disprove the charism of papal infallibility. Honorius was one of those, and in his case, coming to power at the time, And ultimately, the reason four decades later that the Third Council of Constantinople had to take place was the heresy of monothelitism, the belief that while Christ had two natures, divine and human, he only possessed one will, the divine will. The story goes uh, in brief, a man named Sergius, then the patriarch of Constantinople, effectively hoodwinked the Pope in an effort to win papal support. I noted in that episode about Honorius that Sergius was really more politician than theologian in that sense. And he deliberately masked the language so as to make it more ambiguous, using the term, quote, operation instead of the more concrete term will or even volition, as we'll see that the, uh, the ecumenical council used in, in, in Sergius's writing to Honorius. In any case, suffice it to say that Honorius pretty much just rode the fence, writing back to Sergius that, quote, one operation was erroneous, but agreeing that avoiding the phrase two operations would be prudent as well. So the council, four decades later, which Leo II would be asked to confirm, condemned Honorius as a heretic for his actions, as a heretic, for staining the immaculate deposit of faith and tarnishing the office he held. But the Catholic Encyclopedia notes well that such a thing would be impossible. Honorius never claimed to speak infallibly on the matter, and furthermore, he neither defined a teaching nor condemned a teaching. He was perfectly wishy-washy, which, call it what you will, isn't heresy. Anyway, fast forward again to 682, when the decrees finally land on Leo II's desk. 
St. Agatha had been Pope when the council was going on, and the council fathers and the emperor, I believe, by extension, were sending a letter back to who they thought was Agatha, but Agatha had died. So Leo II was the one to confirm the documents. He reads that the council unequivocally condemned Honorius as a heretic, but then Leo opted to actually modify the language before confirming the decree. So upon reviewing the council documents, Leo II clarified its language slightly, making sure to note that though his predecessor wasn't formally a heretic, as Leo noted in a letter to Spanish bishops, Honorius, this is Leo, uh, Honorius, quote, did not, as became the apostolic authority, extinguish the flame of heretical teaching in its first beginning, but fostered it by his negligence, end quote. Now, I'll leave that here, but for a fuller treatment, if anybody's interested, if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, if you're interested in learning more about the Honorius monothelitism issue, be sure to check out episode 13 of the Popecast. After confirming the decrees of the council and sending them back eastward to Constantinople, Leo II also sent letters throughout the West, notifying everybody of his decision and exhorting them to adopt the decrees of the council into their local churches. But unfortunately, that to see that to fruition was going to be a task of his successor because Leo wouldn't himself live much longer. He slipped his mortal coil on June 28th, 683, being around the age of 72 at his death. His feast day is celebrated on July 3rd, like I mentioned at the beginning, marking the date that he was entombed in Old St. Peter's Basilica. Leo's remains would be in their own tomb for almost two centuries when they were removed, though, in 855 and actually combined with the other three of the first four popes Leo, all of whom who happened to be saints. The four Leos stayed there until the 17th century when Leo I, St. Leo the Great, see episode number five of the Popecast, was given his own tomb in the new St. Peter's Basilica. But relics of the other three still reside together and can still be visited by pilgrims and are under the altar in the side chapel of the Madonna della Colonna in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now, sadly, despite much searching online, I wasn't able to find a copy of the existing letters of Pope St. Leo II, aside from the snippets I mentioned above. So instead, we'll close this episode actually with an excerpt from the final decrees of the Sixth Ecumenical Council, the Third Council of Constantinople, which Leo II himself formally approved and wished to be spread throughout the Christian world. We can only assume that he still would like them to be spread throughout the Christian world. So this excerpt addresses specifically the definition of Christ's two natures and two wills, in opposition to the heretics that the council condemned, of course. And it's especially important to Christians today, Catholic or not. Because keep in mind, we're no longer arguing about Christ's natures or wills, and haven't done so for centuries, no matter the Christian denomination. So it's this definition produced through the body of Catholic bishops in union with the Pope of Rome, that even non-Catholic Christians must thank for the understanding of Christ, which we all so gratefully possess today. Here's the council. Quote, Following the five holy and universal previous ecumenical councils, and the holy and accepted fathers, and defining in unison, this council professes our Lord Jesus Christ, our true God, one of the Holy Trinity, which is of one same being and is the source of life, to be perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body, consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity, and the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity, like us in all respects except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days the same for us and for our salvation from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary." who is properly and truly called Mother of God as regards his humanity, 
one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no separation, no division. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same only begotten Son, Word of God, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as Jesus the Christ himself instructed us, and as the creed of the Holy Fathers handed it down to us. And we proclaim equally two natural volitions or wills in him, and two natural principles of action which undergo no division, no change, no partition, no confusion, in accordance with the teaching of the Holy Fathers, and the two natural wills not in opposition, as the impious heretic said, far from it, but his human will following and not resisting or struggling, rather in fact subject to his divine and all-powerful will. For the will of the flesh had to be moved, and yet be subjected to the divine will, according to the most wise Athanasius. For just as his flesh is said to be, and is flesh of the word of God, so too the natural will of his flesh is said to and does belong to the word of God. Just as he says himself, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me, calling his own will that of his flesh, since his flesh too became his own, end quote. Boy, council fathers might need to work on run-on sentences, but that is profound. Well, that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed this or other episodes, please, of course, subscribe, rate, and review the Popecast at iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. It's those reviews and ratings that help boost the Popecast in podcast rankings and make it more likely to be found and heard by others. Plus, if you leave a review, we'll read it aloud on a future episode and, of course, give you a shout out. If you'd like to easily share the Popecast with friends, just text them the link to our website. It's thepopecast.fm. And also, if, you will, if you'd like to become a patron, help us to continue churning these out, cover the costs of hosting and such, and uh, cont- make sure we can continue devoting the time to producing these, just visit thepopecast.fm and click the be- Become a Patron button in the upper right-hand corner. So you'll be able to contribute a buck or two an episode to keep things rolling. It's set up to contribute per episode instead of per month, so you'll actually only get charged when there's new content. And also on that note, I'd like to uh, extend a special thank you, shout out to Nick and Paul, our newest patrons. Nick, Paul, and our other patrons and a couple of lucky Instagram followers were actually all going to be getting uh, limited edition Popecast stickers. Sorry for the delay on that, guys. Having a baby put things on pause, of course, but I'll have those out to you this week. But we've still got a few extras of those stickers. So for the next three patrons who join at the $2 or above level, the Linus level or above you can get uh, yours as well. So that's the Become a Patron link in the upper right-hand corner at our website, thepopecast.fm. And then, of course, to make sure you can get your Pope fix between new episodes, be sure to follow us if you aren't already at Instagram, Twitter, and or Facebook. All of those are at The Popecast. As we close this episode, let us ask the intercession of our holy Pope, St. Leo II, as we continue to pray for stability and fortitude in our church and among our bishops around the world, that they might not be negligent in leading their flocks, but boldly and fearlessly preach the gospel in its fullness. Pope St. Leo II, pray for us. Until next time. Until next time.